Hey, Dinks! Welcome to Dennis in the Know. This is your backstage pass for current trends, politics, and education in the dental world. I'm Dr. Jeff Horowitz. With me is Dr. Jennifer Bell. You know her as JB and Dr. Chad Duplantis. We are all practicing dentists, we are all educators, and we are all business owners. Our job is to bring all of you in the know. Hey, Dinks! We're so glad you're joining us on a special episode, a breakthrough, if you will, from our normal live episodes that we run throughout the week. But we wanted to get this guest on so badly that we uh, were able to carve out some time to meet with him after hours, not our usual hump day happy hour activities. Maybe it'll be better, Chad. I don't know. Maybe we'll be more uh, alert and less less uh, imbibing in the uh, drinks. And obviously, we don't have Jeff here to keep us. He's really good at keeping us under control, right? Running yeah, time. that's right. So, that's right. Uh, this could be a total mess. But anyway, we really wanted to have an opportunity to get Travis on, to spend some time. He's an active member of our community, uh, as well as several other communities that uh, Chad and I are both members of. And he's providing a ton of valuable content, both, I think, in practice ownership, but particularly in insurance optimization and relationships. So we really wanted to find a chance, but he's a busy dad, dentist, lecturer, uh, commentator, et cetera. So finding time in his schedule uh, just had to be carved out a little bit. So uh, I had the great fortune of actually meeting Travis last year uh, at an implant continuum that we uh, unknowingly both signed up for at the same time. Uh, It was with the Alabama Implant Institute, and we... um, spent some time in Atlanta together, and then spent some surgical time together in Alabama, growing our knowledge and comfort of implant dentistry. And I don't know how Travis felt, but I remember sitting through the first course in Atlanta, which I thought I had signed up for just doing single implant dentistry. Like, let's put a single implant in, and then we'll put a crown on it, and life will be good. And like the first five minutes in the lecture, there are filleting open a mandible and the day you go to Alabama, we're going to do an all on four. You're going to open everything up. You're going to find the nerve. And I looked at my business partner at the time and said, I think we signed up for the wrong course. I I didn't, I didn't sign up to do this type of surgery. Uh, But uh, collegially, we all sort of came together as professionals. We put our uh, quote unquote, big girl panties on and showed up for surgery that day. And I think we all walked away with our heads really held high with some of the accomplishments that we were able to make. So I'm really honored and excited to to invite Dr. Travis Campbell on to the show today to talk to us a little bit about his journey, what he's doing on a daily basis, and then what his areas of expertise are in insurance. So thanks, Travis, for joining us. Thank you, Jennifer. Happy to be here. Um, So yeah, the implant course was fun. And I agree. I, I didn't go there for full arch stuff. But I I love the way they did it because by pushing you into full arch, it just makes this the single so easy. Um, I will say the one thing I got out of everything there is I should have started looking into implants 10 years ago. I mean, I don't know why I didn't do it. It was fear. Actually, I know exactly why I didn't do it. It was fear. And now it's one of my favorite things to do. And so that's my I guess my message for everyone all the time is 
get out of the fear, you know, get out of the things that are stopping you from trying new stuff. Cause a lot of times they're the things that are going to make you far more happy at the end. Um, so, you know, clinical is fun. I don't know if you knew this story, but at the end of one of our big procedures that Ange and I did, uh, which was four implants, maxillary, four implants, mandibular, and she and I had divided up the face, you know, in half. And I did the right side. She did the left side. And at the end, they went and took the final CT to, to make sure to make sure everything looked OK. And our patient had um, this metal object in his sinus. And I exactly my look. Your side exactly, or her side. <laughs> So, so then of course, all the instructors came in and said, can you account for all the cover screws? Can you account for all the abutments? Can you account for all your implants? And I said, there's no way it went into the sinus. Like It's all here. What the hell is that in his sinus? And um, of course, then they were like, well, obviously you better not go ahead and pack your bags yet. Cause if that is one of your parts in there, we're going to have to open the sinus and go get it. And I, of course, I went from someone who only wanted to do a single implant to now doing all on four to now doing sinus surgery. So this was escalating very quickly. And um, anyway, they found out the real story, didn't let me in on it until they had me fully convinced that we were about to do some lateral windows to go get this thing. He had buckshot in his face from an accident, a shooting that he'd had 20 years ago. But of course, it looked just like a cover screw, just like it. So <laughs> I uh, I left really still jaded, honestly. They were good sports, though. It was really fun. So Travis, tell us a little bit about your practice your uh, your that you run and, and a little bit about how you sort of got into becoming the dental insurance guy. That's what I was going to ask. I know everybody has a why, and uh, I want to hear Travis's why. <laughs> Well, I was crazy because when I first graduated, I opened an office from scratch immediately, which I don't necessarily recommend doing because, you know, I don't know about the two of you, but my first couple years, I made a lot of mistakes in dentistry. And looking back on it, I almost wish I made those mistakes in somebody else's office with somebody else's reputation. <laughs> but... um it worked out, obviously. So I've been there 15 years now, and that office is doing really well. It's kind of on its, I guess, automated because, you know, we've we've kind of fixed everything that's happened because I'm good at breaking stuff. And so my team, a lot of my team has been with me for a long time. But the, the interesting thing is I was originally in that same idea that, oh, everybody goes out of network. That's just the pinnacle of your career. You end up doing better. And yeah, I was doing that for a long time. You know, back in 2019, I was down to three insurances where when I started, it was 40 something. Um, but in 2019, we actually made a shift and we went back in network with almost everybody. And we increased our collections by 50% and we doubled our profits. So that was all sorts of fun is to just change the game. Now, you know, people ask me how I get started in insurance. I got started in insurance because it ticked me off. I mean, it's the thing that we deal with every day. It's probably one of our biggest headaches every day. 
And so I just, I'm not one to, you know, just go with the flow or leave things alone. I want to find solutions. I want to find answers. I want to find reasons. And I couldn't find anything. You know, nobody out there was really talking about what seemed to affect us um, on a day-to-day basis. They were just talking about coding and, you know, fraud and stuff like that. So I actually ended up going and, you know, looking at the contracts and looking at state and federal laws and putting things together and going, wait a minute, half of the things that annoy me with insurance have nothing to do with reality or source material or anything. It has to do with these myths that we have to work with insurance in certain ways and yet there's no source for that information. And so once we started changing how we were looking at things, um, that's when we ended up going back and network and making a lot more because it was partially going back and network, but it was partially just learning to work with the insurance companies differently and learning to work with the plans differently and learning to build a little bit better. Um, and we just got a lot more successful with it. Hey, Dinks podcast listeners. You love the sound, but you miss seeing our lovely faces. Be sure and join us on our weekly Facebook live or on our YouTube channel at Dennis in the know. We'd love to have you subscribe and be with us at all times everywhere. I think that is, is, you know, it's, you, you kind of, uh, it seems like you kind of got into it by necessity and, and, and by trying to, to make, uh, make things work. But did you, <clears throat> what, when did you really, so you've been out 15 years. When did you do a deep enough dive that you felt that you were strong enough with this to write a book on it? Cause you've, you've been, you're published in this. So. So I wrote a practice management book in 17, and that one was just a story of failures. So if you want to read about how I screwed up my office and what I learned from it, that's what that book is. But the insurance one, it was really COVID. I mean, before then, I had spoken a few times. I had given some seminars, um, and I had people ask me questions about insurance. And so I had a database of you know the answers I had given and things like that. But when COVID hit, it kind of forced me into the... I've got to find something to do. And if I stay at home, hey, I'm going to probably just like my family, um, just because I'm not built for spending 24-7 with my kids. And I would probably end up breaking Netflix, watching it too much. So I had to keep going to my office. And when I went to my office, you know, we were back in that time period where I'd see like one patient every two days. And so I had to have something to do. So I ended up reading contracts and then a majority of the book was written during that two-month shutdown period where I really didn't have a lot of other things useful to do. So I wrote. So once again, you were forced into a deep dive because you had nothing else to do. Yeah, I've been there. Um, How many... You said that you once had 40, you dropped a couple. Where are you at now? I don't... If you said that, I apologize, but... Um, So we are indirectly in network with dozens. I couldn't even tell you the number because I don't even know. Um, We are contracted though, only with three. So, you know, and that's the whole concept of umbrellas and, you know, network leasing is you can get in network through other insurance companies with higher fees. So that's what we accomplished. So most of our patients to, to them, we're in network. I Did just you negotiate your own fees? No, I hired that out. 
Do you, it's a pain in the ass. Yeah, yeah, I, I can imagine. Do you do you have one person that you've worked with for a long time, or have you worked with several, or is there one that you're particularly fond of? Because I know that's a question that comes up a lot. I have worked with a few companies, um, some far more effective than others. So yeah, it's it's been an interesting journey. You know, I I like testing things. My team hates me testing things, but that's fine. That's who I am, and they deal with it. Um, but it there's like anything else. I mean, just like dentistry, there are people in the negotiation world that know exactly what they're doing and do it very well. And there's those that should probably find a different industry. Yep. Yep. I'd agree. Do you think, um, because I see on, we're on some of the similar forums and, and just kind of watching uh, dentist post both obviously pro and con comments about insurance companies. Um, and there seems to be a little bit of a pendulum shift for some to start to consider the idea of going to fee for service, but alternatively for some because of economics and needing to drive new patients to consider moving into network. Mm -hmm. So if you had to provide a little bit of advice or guidance to both the docs who are thinking about coming out of network and those docs who are considering coming in, maybe even for the first time, uh, what would you say? I would say that you've got to go back to the why. You've got to go back to yourself. And all of us are different. We have different personalities. A majority of the fee-for-service doctors, um, they're very good with relationships. Whether they know it or not is a different story, but they're very good building relationships. They are there for people. Um, and then there's those of us like me who I'm not going to the office to talk to a bunch of people about their families and about their random cousins and birthday parties and things like that. That's just not me. I'm going to do dentistry and that's what I want to do. And so you've got to kind of look in yourself and see what is it that drives you? If it's the people and the relationships and that's really what drives you, then great. Go fee for service, you know, deal with one patient an hour, things like that. If you're going for dentistry and you're not really that people person, because I don't know about you, I'm very type A and that doesn't tend to build relationships very well. So I knew for myself, I didn't have the capacity to sit there and chit chat with people all day long. And so, you know, that to me means I've got to focus on the dentistry, which means in network, but both can be successful. That's the point I make is whether you go fee-for-service, whether you go in-network, it doesn't matter. As long as you do it well and you're true to yourself, you can be extremely successful with it. I think the challenge I've seen, I've seen many fee-for-service offices go bankrupt because you take the wrong dentist and personality and put it in that environment and it doesn't work. But I've seen just as many in-networks go bankrupt because they're trying to do high-end dentistry and high-cost dentistry and they just can't deal with it. So... I think it's the mismatch that causes the problem more than anything. And so there is no true, you must go this way or must go that way, or one way is better than the other. I think that's a bunch of baloney. It's find the thing that works for you. I think that's a really interesting take. Um, and, and I can't say that I, I disagree um, entirely. I think I think there's there's going to be crossover, but that's a really interesting take. And you see a lot of that, too. But I think more so 
um, as an outsider looking in from either aspect, it's just, you see the extremes, you know, somebody that's extremely successful in an insurance driven practice that doesn't really want to get to know their patients and somebody who's extremely successful in a fee for service practice that knows, you know, that their cat fluffy got stuck in the garage right before they left to come to the dental office, you know, and they'll tell that story for the next six years, you know? Mm -hmm. So um, that's an interesting take. I really, really impressed with, with, with what you said. I've never really thought of it that way, but it's interesting. Do you think practices can just dabble with insurance, you know, like go into one network and have a, a small relationship? I think that's really hard to do. And here's why a lot of it's not even just the dentist. A lot of it's our teams. And so if our teams are constantly having to deal with some patients that are in network and getting like half price and other patients that are fee for service and getting full price, I think a lot of humans are going to have a challenge with charging people that extremely of a difference. Um, And so that's the problem I've seen with a lot of hybrid offices is the teams don't have the ability to handle it well. And I'm not saying that it's, a fault of theirs. It's just, it's a very difficult thing to do to treat completely different patients. But here's the thing too, I talk about, I don't ever recommend people go directly in network across the board because that's how you get really low fees that are just crazy. You know, most of our fees are within 15 to 20% of my full fee in network. So my membership plan is not that much farther off than that. So a majority of my patients are paying about the same either way. And yet we're listed as in network. And that's the thing is, you know, there's three ways of doing it. You can be directly in network, indirectly in network, or fully fee for service or out of network. I just don't recommend going directly in network. You know, if you actually utilize the network leasing, you can get those fees that are much higher. And therefore, you're not taking that much of a hit. You're not taking a 40 and 50 and 60% hit on your fees. You're taking a 20% Hey, hit. Jeff, apparently it's come to our attention that you and I suck at the news. Yeah, Chad, um, I, I've actually kind of known that for a while. And, and that's why what we've had to do is give people more of what they really deserve, which is more JB. So we actually have a segment now called News on the Go with Dennis in the Know. In fact, I like the idea of JB's News on the Go with Dennis in the Know. So stay tuned for that. It's its own podcast. I'm really excited about it. And guess what? There's no Chad and Jeff. So let me ask you this. I know the majority is is maybe 100% PPO. Are you in any DMO or HMO networks? No. JBU? Mm-mm. Let's talk about that for a second, because um, I I always find that fascinating. What do you what do you think it is that entices people to join a PPO? I mean, a DMO or HMO network? I mean, patients, that's why would you join any network is to get more patients. Um, And you the challenge, though, with HMOs is you have to recode and rethink completely differently. And that's what I don't like about it personally. Um, I've seen people be successful with it. Great. But you have to treat things completely differently. You know, we always had the concept in dentistry and PPO world that, you know, a crown includes 
the basic lab fee and includes anesthetic and room cleaning and, you know, all the things we're going to do on a day-to-day basis. HMOs pretty much flip that on its head. You know, you got to think of medical at this point is you're going to get charged for the cotton rolls and the anesthetic, and you're going to get charged to clean the room and you're going to get charged an assistant fee and you're going to get charged every single lab fee as a separate item. So you're unbundling everything in HMO world versus PPO unbundling is not seen as a kosher thing. That's, that's, uh, that's some, that's funny. I get, I have some family members that live elsewhere and they, they have HMO insurance and they'll send me these treatment plans or charges. And I look at all the itemized things and there's, there's a couple things in there that I always wonder, are these items just not assigned to their insurance that they can charge extra for? But with that being said, are there certain procedures, Travis, that you feel that that you just that you feel that you can't or you just don't do because there's zero profit in it based upon the fee schedule? Talking about a P- PPO? No. Yeah. I mean, everything is profitable. Here's the thing about profit: people forget is we have fixed overhead and we have variable overhead. Everybody forgets the majority of our overhead is fixed, meaning it doesn't matter how much dentistry we do. We're still paying rent. We're still paying utilities. We're still paying our teams. So all of that stuff has to get paid regardless. Our variable cost, basically the cost to do dentistry, is extremely small. And this is what puts dentistry in a realm so different than most industries in the world. Most industries have high fixed costs. We have high variable costs. Or um, Most industries have high variable costs. We have high fixed costs. So when it comes to dentistry, there's very little that we can't do very profitably. The challenge most of us have is we don't produce enough to make up for all the pretty things that we've bought. That was directed to Chad specifically. I wasn't directing that to anybody, but if you would like it to go to Chad, Jennifer, that's all on you. If you will, you just throw it my way and I'll knock it over. Um, I was going to say too, Chad, on your um, DHMO comment that, um, the only time I've experienced it in my practice or in my practicing life was when I worked in corporate dentistry. And that's because everybody's being paid on commission. So it doesn't really matter if it's $600 for a root canal and a crown. If everybody's being paid commission, the to, to Travis's point of that variable and fixed cost, if my salary is variable based on production, then they can afford to take whatever fees are offered because whatever I'm able to produce off of that is essentially, it makes it very frustrating as an associate doctor because you're never going to see the level of production or financial uh, fruits of your labor because you're working for pennies. Um, So it does become very disenfranchising pretty quickly. Um, And then some of them have capitation, which just means that there's money coming back to the practice for seeing those patients. But again, I don't know what Travis's experience is, but I didn't see that money being passed on to those commissioned providers. So, you know, if the large group was receiving checks. Here's the challenge with that. People forget what capitation truly is. Capitation is paying for the things that have zero dollars attached to them, mostly hygiene. So capitation by nature should go to the office because it's paying the hygienists. 
Um, that's all it's there for. And there isn't enough money to go to the associate at that point. But yes, this is why, you know, another way HMOs work is whether it's natural or whether it's intentional. It's those who get a large group of patients, you get a large capitation check, but have very little utilization of those patients. Meaning you could have a thousand patients, but only 50 of them ever show up in a year. Well, that brings a lot of value. But if you, because you're getting paid the same either way, but if you have a thousand patients and 500 of them are coming, you're, you're going to go bankrupt. It's just, that's the nature of it. Um, and so you have to, if you're not automatically getting patients who just never go to the dentist in your list, you've got to funnel them. You've got to prevent your office from getting flooded with the patients that literally are bringing you no money. And that's another reason I just personally don't like HMOs because you've got to do things that I don't like doing. I think that, that, um, you know, hearing you all talk about this, it's funny because everybody looks at fee for service differently than, than, you know, an insurance practice. And I, I'm not going to lie. I mean, there have been points in, in my career where we've actually contemplated taking on plans. I mean, for instance, we're, we're directly across the street from BNSF's world headquarters and they're constantly changing their their insurance policies. And what we found is the biggest thing in our practice is verbiage in how we address the patients. Have we lost patients to PPOs? Absolutely. It's funny, though, the vast majority of them end up coming back for one reason or another if they're relationship-driven people. So you said that earlier. Um, some of them don't, but you know, the thing is, is that when they leave, I'm like, we'll never see them again. We'll never see them again. But we find that it's our verbiage competing with the verbiage of HR at the corporation, because they're trying to tell patients that they have to go to a PPO dentist, whereas they're not really telling them that they have the option to go out of network and so, you know, we've done a lot of cost analyses for patients as well as to what the difference would be to come to our office or versus or go to go somewhere else. One of the biggest things that patients don't understand, though, and I, I don't know if you all see this either, is that two thousand bucks is two thousand bucks. You know, and, and that's it. That is fifteen hundred, two thousand. There have been a couple policies that I've seen as of late we have this patient that has a $6,000 a year policy. If she goes to an in-network dentist, mm -hmm. she has a $1,500 policy if she goes out of network. However, she wants 10 veneers. And so it's like, you know, what, what are you going to do? And so um, she's like, well, I'm not switching, uh, you know, for, for that. I was like, you know, they're not going to pay for any of these. Nobody's mm -hmm. going to pay for any of these. You know, you send a picture in this, this deal's dead in the water anywhere. And so, you know, it's, it's where do you want to get it done? And, um, and I know some damn good, including you two PPO dentists. So I'm not knocking any PPO dental office or whatever. I mean, but I'm telling you that the struggle's real, you know, for, from my side and I'm sure from yours too. Yeah, I mean, and this, again, comes back to the conversations, the relationship. I'd rather have conversations about dentistry versus having to have conversations about 
selling myself or skills or, you know, why somebody should pay more to come see me. No, I just, you know, here's what your insurance fee sets. Great. I, you know, that concept's off the board and we don't have to talk about it. It's, you know, it's easy. So, but I, I get it. I mean, I would love to have a schedule where I see two patients a day and, you know, produce $8,000. Great. But I also get bored personally. So, you know, but maybe that's why you're on Facebook all the time, Chad. You got the time to do it. <laughs> yeah, that's true. All the time, man. All the time. So, yeah, he got me. Um, <laughs> when you lecture, what is one of the, I'm sure you've experienced it. There's one thing, it's a trigger. You always see that light bulb go across the room when you say something uh, either a very bold statement or something that, you know, the general population just truly doesn't understand. Uh, what are one of those moments? The fun one is when I ask people, if you think about the reviewers on the insurance company side, their employees, when do they get pulled into their boss's office, their supervisor's office and get yelled at? Is it when they're approving claims or denying claims. What do you Approving. think? Wrong. Dead wrong. It's when they're denying claims. They get yelled at for denying claims that end up in appeals. Oh, that is, yeah. Because here's the thing. Most of us, again, don't think about the insurance companies from a business point of view. Their biggest cost is our biggest cost. It's payroll. It takes minimal, if not no human effort to process a claim originally. But a review of a claim costs 10 or 20 minutes of a human to pay for. So that's exponential higher increase in cost. That's what the insurance company is trying to avoid is appeals. And so reviewers will get yelled at if they are denying claims that should never have been denied or that end up with lots of fights and appeals. And so that's the thing to think about is everybody, we always hear the story that, oh, insurance companies are only there to deny everything. Well, I mean, they're going to make it hard for sure. But outright denials end up costing them more money in the long run. And so that's what they just don't do. What I try to get people to see is if you're getting denied a lot, it's probably because of you, not the insurance company. It's the documentation you're sending. And that's where, you know, I talk to people all the time. That's the biggest thing I teach is how to have correct documentation. Because what we send is a big reason why we get approved or denied. Hey, Dinks. Thanks so much for listening to our podcast today. Remember to rate and review your favorite podcast. Subscribe and enjoy what you like or it goes away. Do you think uh, AI is coming in uh, pretty strong in the insurance world? Um, and certainly I, I can see pros and cons of its implementation, uh, for insurances and for practitioners. So if you had a 10 year outlook and you had a magic crystal ball of what you think that's going to look like, um, what is your observation? So right now about 70% of claims are completely processed by a, hu- or a computer. The majority of the ones who are processed by humans are perio and crowns. So AI is that ability to process more crowns in Perio through a computer. 
because all they're doing is looking at the x-ray, looking at density far better than a human can and doing calculations. Um, I will foresee that from an insurance company point of view, it's going to go from 70% automated to 80 to 90% automated to lower the costs. On the dental side, if you've ever used an AI software, it's amazing. We have one and it will take my looking through x-rays to be, you know, two minutes to five seconds because it pops up everything you want to see. And once you learn to trust it, you start ignoring the things that it doesn't pop up at you because there's nothing there. And so it speeds you up, but it, it's amazing. You know, I don't know about you. I always have this challenge when we get these interproximal lesions that are they through the DEJ? Are they not? Do I really want to treat them? And the team's going, I don't know what the hell Dr. Campbell's going to do with that because there's no consistency. When you got an AI, it great gives you consistency. And so you've got to where the doctor just knows, okay, if it's yellow, it's incipient. If it's red, it's a cavity. And I'm always going to go by that. And magically, it never is wrong. At least I haven't found it wrong yet. Um, but I would say it's even more valuable for those offices that have multiple doctors because you've got multiple different people looking at it. And human eyes are horrible on x-rays compared to a computer. Um, we can't read pixel relations like you know a computer can read. And so it can provide a lot of consistency between providers in terms of treatment planning as well. So can it potentially cause more um, denials, which is what everybody fears? Possibly. But I'll tell you, I work with companies, I know they're using a lot of AI and we're not getting any more denials. But again, it all comes down to documentation and what you're sending. So I actually see this very positive thing across the board for both of us. In terms How long of have you incorporated AI? Uh, a little over a year. Okay. And I, this may be a dumb question because I think I know the answer, but have you just seen that improve over the past year greatly or are you not noticing much change? Has it been pretty good from the onset? With the software we're using, has there been any change? No. Have I seen change with other softwares that are coming to market? Absolutely. Okay. I mean, and it's like most companies. Once they have a product that's working and selling, their R&D goes in the tubes and they go more to marketing, which it's not a failure. It's just what they do. Um, and so the people who are innovative are rarely the ones at the top of the game. It's the ones trying to break into the market. Interesting. It's like you, Chad. What do you? You're the top of your game in your you area, give? right? <laughs> I wish. Yeah. What advice would you give to clinicians to continue to stay current? Obviously, they can maybe attend one of your courses or or read your book, and but we all know that that uh, process of understanding insurance there's a baseline level of knowledge that you need to know, but then there's an ever-evolving landscape within the insurance world that you have to stay current and relevant on. So how do you stay current um, and knowledgeable about those changes? And then ultimately, what do general practitioners out there do to continue to be um, to be effective? How do I stay current? It's things that I doubt most people want to do, which is read contracts, actually delve into the language, follow the trends of what insurance companies are doing with billing. Um and I have some sources that I don't think most people would ever be able to obtain. Um, so 
I, I wouldn't say do it the way I do it um, because it would drive you nuts. But that's why I put the website together is everything I learn and find it, it gets filtered into that. And then, you know, bogged down into what do you actually need to know day to day? So that's, that's the platform I put together and that's why I put it together. And it's been really successful so far. Well, I think most practitioners need that type of support, just like they need support clinically and and elsewhere. I mean, at the end of the day, it is still a for-profit business. So you have to understand how your patients are coming through your practice and ultimately how the billing is going to be handled. And, And ours is just much more nuanced than going to a grocery store and selecting an item and paying for that item directly. Um, and there's, you know, longer accounts receivable action items you have to manage and, you know, all the, all the interesting nuances for young dentists out there looking to start their own practice and doing the unthinkable, as you sort of mentioned, like being very brave and bold and and doing that, uh, where does insurance fall in that game for them? And, and how do they need to, is it truly just their type of personality or do you think it's going to be a necessity for most new practices? Well, and there's details in everything. You know, if you go to a rural area where there are no other dentists, well, you don't have to go on network because there's nobody else around. There's no competition. Why not? And you're going to find a larger majority of the fee-for-service dentists are in low saturation areas. But the challenge is a majority of dentists are going where a majority of the population is going, which is the urban centers. And you got to think about it from a patient's point of view. Why would I go to a dentist who's a new grad who's fee-for-service versus a dentist who's been around for 20 years who's PPO? I mean, just you don't have the credentials. You don't have the authority. You don't have what it takes in most cases to compete in a high-saturation area um, unless you're joining an office that's already got that reputation. So it's just very difficult to do. Now, can you do it? Absolutely. But you talk about a massive uphill battle. So it depends on your area. It depends on your personality. It depends on what you want to do. It depends on your skills. Um, it depends on the patient population. So a majority of us, if we're going, you know, high urban areas and high saturation, insurance is just going to be a part of the game. But here's the thing, too. I mean, even Chad, you know, you deal with insurance. Your patients have insurance. They've got it. They want to utilize it. It doesn't matter if we're in or out of network. We still have to understand it. And we still have to know how to work with it. No, it, you're absolutely right. And, you know, one of the questions that uh, I guess since we're, we're getting short on time, I'll close with this question. But what I know that you all certainly follow analytics for your practice through practice management software, or what are the, whatever avenues that you use. Um, do you all create uh, your own spreadsheets or create your own analytics based upon you know, the, the fees from the insurance companies and, and kind of gauge that, do you all, do you all have those analytics that you just create yourself that, that you kind of keep track of and, and watch and monitor to make sure that you're not getting quote unquote screwed by, by one company versus another? Um, no, because if you learn to work with them, they're all about the same. I mean, that they all have the same basic rules. They all have the same basic necessities. Um, the thing I would say, all dentists, if they're going to track, need to track really well. And most softwares don't give this automated ability. There are some third-party softwares that will, is treatment acceptance. 
That's amazing. We do something that is so necessary for people. And in most cases is going to save them money over time. And yet the average dentist has under 40% treatment acceptance, which is insane. Um, And it's all going back to what you said, Chad. It's all how we talk to people. It's all the verbiage. It's the communication skills. So that's the thing I would say everybody needs to track is because so many of us have a full plate of treatment to do. And yet so many of us don't have a full schedule. And a lot of it's because of how we talk to people. That's that's true. And, and, you know, and I think it, I would say that that's probably the biggest change that I've noticed throughout my career. I've been doing this for 23 years now. Um, I know my treatment acceptance has gone up, but I also know that it, it, and I'm not saying this to be braggadocious or anything, but the longer I've been in practice, the easier it is for patient acceptance. And especially the longer that patients have been with us in the practice, it's like, you know, you need this, this, and this, and then they go up to the front and they schedule, you know, and that's just the way that it goes. Uh, there's, there's a lot less verbiage as time goes on, but that's just due to trust and loyalty. I believe as, as you know, as we've seen, Travis, I think you're, you're, you're friends with this person. If not, I, I apologize, but Jennifer Libling, do you know, Jennifer, she is, the reason I asked that spreadsheet question is she has, if, and I know that she shares it, but she has done the most research out of anybody I've ever met on her PPOs and what she does in her practice. I was just blown away with the record keeping that she does. And I didn't know if that was normal for, for, for a lot of PPO dentists, but it was just, it was amazing and talks about how she negotiates with the companies as well. I know it's a a cumbersome task. So my hat's off to both of you all. And I know you're both successful in your own rights. And, and I, I think that's just, just phenomenal. And I, Travis, I love what you're doing with something that people really don't like to talk about. Um, you've really, you've got a passion project and you're pretty damn good at it. So I even enjoyed listening to you speak on, on PPOs because you know, you never know. I may need you more than, than ever down the road. So thank you. Well, thank you, Chad. JB. We, well, <clears throat> first off, I always learn something new when I hang out with Travis and I genuinely appreciate his time Thanks so much for spending a little bit of your busy schedule to share some of your insights and also to offer the opportunity for our listeners to learn more about insurance from you and to hopefully seek your sources out. Because I think you're providing an incredibly valuable service to all dentists, whether you're in network or not. And we didn't even begin to touch the nuances of heaven forbid you're thinking about selling your practice or bringing in an associate. And all the nuances that come along with that in the insurance world, that will just have to be for part two of our continued discussion. In the meantime, you can find him at dentalinsuranceguy.com. He's pretty active on several different forums, most notably on Dental Nachos and then our platform, Dennis in the Know. And hopefully we'll have you back on the program really soon. Travis, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. It's a pleasure being here. Thanks, Travis. And that wraps up another podcast for Dentists in the Know. On behalf of Dr. Jennifer Bell, Dr. Chad Duplantis, and myself, remember that we've got a great profession, so let's make it a great day, dinks.